Section 13 of National Geographic Magazine, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Phil Schempf. An Expedition to Mount St. Elias, Alaska by Israel C. Russell, Part 2. Narrative of the St. Elias Expedition of 1890, Part 7. Highest Point Reached. Rising at three o'clock in the morning of August 22nd, we started for the summit of St. Elias, taking with us only our waterproof coats, some food, and the necessary instruments. The higher mountain summits were no longer clearly defined, but in the early light it was impossible to tell whether or not the day was to be fair. From the highest and sharpest peaks, cloud banners were streaming off towards the southeast, showing that the higher air currents were in rapid movement vapor banks in the east were flushed with long streamers of light as the sun rose but soon faded to a dull ashen gray while the cloud banners between us and the sun became brilliant like the halo seen around the moon when the sky is covered with fleecy clouds this was the first time in my experience that i had seen colored banners waving from the mountain tops we found the snow surface hard and made rapid headway up the glacier our only difficulty was the uncertainty of the early light which rendered it impossible to tell the slope of the uneven snow surfaces the light was so evenly diffused that there were no shadows the rare beauty of that silent wintry landscape so delicate in its pearly half-tones and so softly lighted was unreal and fairy-like the winds were still but strange forebodings of coming changes filled the air long waving threads of vapor were woven in lacework across the sky the white-robed mountains were partially concealed by cloud masses drifting like spirits along their mighty battlements and far far above from the topmost pinnacles irised banners were signaling the coming of a storm we made rapid progress but early in the day came to the base of a heavy cloud bank which enshrouded all the upper part of st elias then snow began to fall, and it was evident that to proceed farther would be rash and without promise of success. After twenty days of fatigue and hardship since leaving Blossom Island, with our goal almost reached, we were obliged to turn back. Hoping to be able to renew the attempt after the storm had passed, Mr. Kerr left his instruments on the snow between two huge crevasses, and we returned to our tent, where we passed the remainder of the day and the night following the snow continued to fall throughout the day and the storm increased in force as night came on when we awoke in the morning the tempest was still raging we were in the midst of the storm cloud the dense vapor and the fine drifting snow crystals swept along by the wind obscured everything from view the white snow surface could not be distinguished from the vapor-filled air there was no earth and no sky we seemed to be suspended in a white translucent medium which surrounded us like a shroud the snow was already more than three feet deep about our tent and to remain longer with the short supply of provisions on hand was exceedingly hazardous as there seemed no limit to the duration of the storm a can of rations had been left at rope cliff and we decided to return to that place if possible resuming our packs we roped ourselves together and began to descend through the blinding mist and the snow which rendered the atmosphere so dense that a man could not be distinguished at a distance of a hundred feet with only an occasional glimpse of the white cliff around to guide us we worked our way downward over snow bridges and between the crevasses our ascent through this dangerous region had been slow and difficult but our descent was still more tedious 
all day long we continued to creep slowly along through the blinding storm and as night approached believed ourselves near the steps cut in the snow cliff during the ascent but darkness came before we reached them shoveling the snow away as best we could with our hands and basins we cleared a place down to the old snow large enough for our tent and went into camp in the morning august twenty fourth the storm had spent its force and left the mountains with an immaculate covering but still partially veiled by shreds of storm clouds we found ourselves on one of the many tables of snow bounded on all sides by crevasses of great depth but not far from the snow cliff where we had cut steps the steps were obliterated by the new snow but by means of a rope and alpenstocks we made the descent without much difficulty the last man to go down not having the help of the rope used two alpenstocks and descended by first planting one firmly in the snow and lowering himself as far as he could still retaining a firm hold and then planting the other in the snow at a lower level and removing the higher one by slowly and carefully repeating this operation he descended the cliff safely and rejoined his companions passing on beneath the cliffs dangerous on account of avalanches we reached in safety the precipice where we had left our rope the heavy avalanche had swept down from the heights above during our absence and sent its spray over the precipice we had to descend the cliff of ice towering above the place where our rope was fastened had become greatly melted and honeycombed and threatened every moment to crash down and destroy any one who chanced to be beneath to stand above the precipice in the shadow of the treacherous snow cliffs while the men were descending the rope was exceedingly trying to one's nerves but the avalanches did not come and the previous camping place below rope cliff was reached with safety the following day august twenty fifth after some consultation it was decided to once more attempt to reach the top of mount st elias lindsley and stamy who had shared without complaint our privations in the snow volunteered to descend to a lower camp for additional rations while kerr and myself returned to the higher camp in hope that we might be able to ascend the peak before the men returned and if not to have sufficient rations when they did join us to continue the attack the men departed on their difficult errand while kerr and i with blankets tents oil stoves and what rations remained once more scaled the cliff where we had placed a rope and returned on the trail made the day previously about noon we reached the excavation in the snow where we had bivouacked in the storm and there prepared a lunch it was then discovered that we had been mistaken as to the quantity of oil in our cans we found scarcely enough to cook a single meal to attempt to remain several days in the snow with this small supply of fuel seemed hazardous and mr kerr volunteered to descend and overtake the men at the lower camp procure some oil and return the following day we then separated mr kerr starting down the mountain leaving me with a double load weighing between sixty and seventy pounds to carry through the deep snow to the high camp previously occupied alone in the highest camp trudging wearily on i reached the high camp at sunset and pitched my tent in the excavation previously occupied an alpenstock was used for one tent pole and the snow saturated with water piled up in a column for the other the snow froze in a few minutes and held the tent securely the ends of the ridge rope were then stamped into the snow and water was poured over them the edges of the tent were treated in a similar manner and my shelter was ready for occupation after cooking some supper over the oil stove i rolled myself in a blanket and slept the sleep of the weary i was awakened in the morning by snow drifting into my tent and on looking out discovered that i was again caught in a blinding storm or mist of snow 
the storm raged all day and all night and continued without interruption until the evening of the second day the coal oil becoming exhausted a can was filled with bacon grease in which a cotton rag was placed for a wick and over this witch lamp i did my cooking during the remainder of my stay the snow falling steadily soon buried my tent already surrounded on three sides by an icy wall higher than my head and it was only by almost constant exertion that it was kept from being crushed in with a pint basin for a shovel i cleared the tent as best i could and several times during the day re-excavated the hole leading down to the pond which had long since disappeared beneath a level plain of white the excavation of a tunnel in the snow was also begun in the expectation that the tent would become uninhabitable the following night it became impossible to keep the tent clear in spite of energetic efforts and early in the morning it was crushed in by a great weight of snow leaving me no alternative but to finish my snow house and move in a tunnel some four or five feet in length was excavated in the snow and a chamber about six feet long by four feet wide and three feet high was made at right angles to the tunnel in this chamber i placed my blankets and other belongings and hanging a rubber coat on an alpenstock at the entrance found myself well sheltered from the tempest there i passed the day and the night following at night the darkness and silence in my narrow tomb-like cell was oppressive not a sound broke the stillness except the distant muffled roar of an occasional avalanche i slept soundly however and in the morning was awakened by the croaking of a raven in the snow immediately above my head the grotto was filled with soft blue light but a pink radiance at the entrance told that the day had dawned bright and clear what a glorious sight awaited me the heavens were without a cloud and the sun shone with dazzling splendor on the white peaks around the broad unbroken snow plain seemed to burn with light reflected from millions of shining crystals the great mountain peaks were draped from base to summit in the purest white yet unscarred by avalanches on the steep cliffs the snow hung in folds like drapery tier above tier while the angular peaks stood out like crystals against the sky st elias was one vast pyramid of alabaster the winds were still not a sound broke the solitude not an object moved even the raven was gone leaving me alone with the mountains as the sun rose higher and higher and made its warmth felt the snow was loosened on the steep slopes and here and there broke away gathering force as it fell it rushed down in avalanches that made the mountains tremble and awakened thunderous echoes from a small beginning high up on the steep slopes the new snow would slip downward silently at first and cascade over precipices hundreds of feet high looking like a fall of foaming water then came the roar increasing in volume as the flowing snow involved new fields in its path of destruction until the great mass became irresistible and ploughed its way downward through clouds of snow spray which hung in the air long after the snow had ceased to move and the roar of the avalanche had ceased all day long until the shadow of evening fell on the steep slopes this mountain thunder continued the echoes of one avalanche scarcely died away before they were awakened by another roar to witness such a scene under the most favorable conditions was worth all the privations and anxiety it cost besides the streams of new snow there were occasional avalanches of a different character caused by the breaking away of portions of the cliffs of old snow accumulated perhaps during several winters these start from the summits of precipices and are caused by the slow downward creep of the snow fields above 
the snow cliffs are always crevassed and broken in much the same manner as are the ends of glaciers which enter the sea and occasionally large masses containing thousands of cubic yards break away and are precipitated down the slopes with a suddenness that is always startling usually the first announcement of these avalanches is a report like that of a cannon followed by a rumbling roar as the descending mass ploughs its way along the avalanches formed by old snow are quite different from those caused by the descent of the new surface snow but are frequently accompanied by surface streams in case there has been a recent storm the paths ploughed out by the avalanches are frequently sheathed with glassy ice formed by the freezing water produced by the melting of snow on account of the heat produced by the friction of the moving mass a third variety of avalanches due to falling stones has already been noticed the floor of my snow chamber was the surface of the old snow on which we had pitched our tents at the time we first reached that camping place on this hard surface and forming the walls of the cell there were thirty inches of clear white snow the upper limit of which was marked by a blue layer of ice about a quarter of an inch thick this indicated the thickness of snow that fell during the first storm its surface had been melted and softened during the days of sunshine that followed its fall and had frozen into clear ice above the blue band which encircled the upper portion of my chamber was the soft pure white snow of the second storm the stratification of snow which i had seen fall rendered it evident that my interpretation of the stratification observed in the sides of crevasses was correct the snow when it fell was soft and white and composed of very fine crystals but under the influence of the air and sunshine it changed its texture and became icy and granular and then resembled the neve snow so common in high mountains the day following the storm was bright and beautiful the sunlight was warm and pleasant but the temperature in the shadows was always below freezing the surface of the snow did not melt sufficiently during the day to freeze and form a crust during the night it thus became more and more apparent that the season was too far advanced to allow the snow to harden sufficiently for us to be able to climb the mountain the snow settled somewhat and changed its character but even at midday the crystals on the surface glittered as brilliantly in the sunlight as they did in the early morning although the snow did not melt its surface was lowered slightly by evaporation the tracks of the raven at first sunken a quarter of an inch in the soft surface after the first day of sunshine stood slightly in relief but were still clearly defined on the sixth day after separating from my companions judging that they must have returned at least to the camping place where we had separated i packed my blankets and what food remained abandoned the tent and oil stove and started to descend the mountain the snow had settled somewhat but was still soft and yielding and over six feet deep tramping wearily on through the chaff-like substance i slowly worked my way downward and again threaded the maze of crevasses now partially concealed by the layer of new snow with which we had struggled several times before midway to the next camping place i met my companions coming up to search for me instead of meeting three men as i expected i saw five tramping along in single file through the deep snow the sight of human beings in that vast solitude was so strange that i watched them for some time before shouting glad as i was to meet my companions once more i could not help noticing their rough and picturesque appearance each man wore colored glasses and carried a long alpenstock and two or three had packs strapped on their backs several weeks of hard tramping over moraines and snowfields had made many rents in their clothes 
which had been mended with cloth of any color that chanced to be available not a few rags were visible fluttering in the wind to a stranger they would have appeared like a dangerous band of brigands the reason for the presence of five men instead of three was this lindsley and stamy when they left us at Ropecliff to return for additional rations were obliged to go back to camp twelve in order to get a tent and an oil stove on reaching that place the temptation to return to blossom island was so great that lindsley could not resist it and went back to the base camp where he reported that kerr and i were storm-bound in the mountains and in need of assistance three men partridge doney and white started at once and found stamy who had waited for their arrival at camp twelve the day was thus lost which increased mr kerr's hardship and might have proved disastrous the party then returned to rope cliff and joined kerr on the evening of august twenty ninth on this occasion as on several others i found myself indebted to stamy for willing assistance when others hesitated during my imprisonment at the highest camp mr kerr was detained under similar circumstances at the camp below rope cliff on endeavoring to rejoin me with a supply of coal oil so very valuable under the circumstances he was caught in the storm and was unable to reach the rendezvous point he reached rope cliff late in the afternoon of the first day of the storm climbed the precipice and found his way through the gathering darkness along the nearly obliterated trail beneath the avalanche cliffs and up the steps cut in the snow cliff to the site of our bivouac camp finding nothing there and being unable to proceed farther through the blinding storm he abandoned the attempt and returned to the camp below rope cliff in descending the rope he found that its lower end had become fast in the snow the taut line sheathed with ice was an uncertain help in the darkness midway in the descent his hand slipped and he slid to the bottom but the cushion of new snow broke the fall and prevented serious injury alone without fire without blankets having only a canvas cover and a rubber cloth for shelter and with but little food he passed three anxious days and nights before the arrival of the camp hands the return deciding that the ascent of mount st elias could not be accomplished through the new snow which refused to harden it was decided to abandon the attempt and return to blossom island our retreat was none too soon storm succeeded storm throughout september each time the clouds lifted the mantle of new snow was seen to have descended lower and lower our last view showed the wintry covering nearly down to timberline on the night of august thirty first we slept at the camp beneath rope cliff but had a most uncomfortable night six men sleeping in a tent measuring seven by seven feet with but little protection from the ice beneath certainly does not seem inviting to one surrounded by the comforts of civilization a large part of the night was occupied by doney in preparing breakfast over our oil stove an early start was welcome to all we were disappointed at not being able to reach the top of st elias and were anxious to return to more comfortable quarters kerr concluded to return at once to blossom island to recuperate while i made an excursion up the seward glacier with the hope of gaining the upper ice fall and seeing the amphitheatre beyond we left rope cliff about six in the morning and found the snow hard and travelling easy for several hours after descending the lower ice fall however the snow became soft and a change in the atmosphere indicated the approach of another storm kerr and doney pressed on and were soon lost to sight while the rest of the party were delayed owing to partridge having become snow-blind and almost helpless as the crevasses were exceedingly numerous and the snow bridges soft and uncertain 
the task of conducting a blind man to a place of safety was by no means light partridge bore up bravely under his affliction however and did not hesitate in crawling across the treacherous snow bridges with a rope fastened about his body and a man before and behind to assist his movements late in the day we reached our camping place at the eastern border of the agassiz glacier while kerr and doney crossed dome pass and spent the night in a tent which had been left standing at the first camping place east of the pass we pitched a tent on our old camping place at camp sixteen and had the luxury of a rocky bed to sleep on that night as partridge's blindness still continued white was sent ahead to tell kerr and doney to wait for us in the morning so that partridge could accompany them to blossom island rain continued all that night and all the next day as partridge's eyes were still unserviceable in the morning i concluded to wait a day before allowing him to start for blossom island toward evening on september twenty first we moved our camp across dome pass and pitched our tent on the high ridge beside the one occupied by kerr and doney in the morning although the storm still continued our party divided kerr doney and partridge starting early for blossom island while stamey white and myself after following their tracks for a few miles turned to the left and worked our way northeastward among the crevasses of the seward glacier toward evening we reached the northwest spur of mount owen but found the cliffs rising abruptly from the glacier and too favorable for avalanches to admit of our camping near them again we were forced to go into camp on the open glacier and were less comfortable than previously on similar occasions owing to the fact that we had been exposed to the rains for three consecutive days and our blankets and clothes were wet rain continued all night and all the next day and on the following night changed to snow on the morning of september fourth we awoke to find the skies clear but the mountains all about us were white with snow before the sun rose white and i started for the top of the high ridge above us determined to have at least a distant view of the amphitheatre which we wished to explore the snow about our camp was only six to eight inches deep but as we ascended the mountain it grew more and more troublesome and at a height of a thousand feet above camp was thirty inches deep on gaining the summit of the ridge a magnificent view was obtained of the upper portion of the seward glacier and of mount irvine and mount logan and many bold tapering mountains farther northeastward the whole landscape was snow-covered and as the sun rose clear in the east it became of the most dazzling brilliancy an icy wind swept down from the northeast and rendered it exceedingly difficult to take photographs or to make measurements on endeavoring to use my prismatic compass i found that having been soaked with moisture during the previous days of storm it froze solid and refused to move on being exposed to the air making what observations i could we started back to camp with the intention of abandoning all further attempts to work in the high mountains on the steep slope now exposed to the full sunshine several avalanches had gone down and there was great danger of others selecting a point where an avalanche had already swept away the new snow we worked our way downward in a zigzag course and reached the bottom safely although an avalanche starting near at hand swept by within a few yards when nearly at the bottom my attention was attracted by a noise above and on looking up i saw two rocks bounding down the slope and coming straight for me to dodge them on the steep slippery slope was difficult and dangerous allowing one to pass over my right shoulder i instantly moved in that direction and allowed the other to pass over my left shoulder they shot by me like fragments of shells but did no injury reaching camp 
we found that Stamy had dried our blankets and clothes. Resuming our packs, we slowly threaded our way downward to Camp 14, at the western end of the Pinnacle Pass cliffs. We there found cans of rations left several days before, and, pitching our tent, passed the night. We knew by the signs found there that Kerr and his companions, after taking lunch, had renewed their journey towards Blossom Island. Our camp was just at the lower limit of the new snow. To the northward, all was of the purest white, but southward, down the glacier, the snow fields were yellow and much discolored. Many changes had taken place in the Seward Glacier since we first saw it. The pinnacles, snow tables, and crevasses in the rapids were less striking than formerly, and had evidently suffered greatly from the summer's heat. About the bases of the cliffs there were dark, irregular patches of debris, where a month previously all was white. As nearly as could be judged, the surface of the glacier had been lowered by melting and settling during our absence about fifty feet. The following morning, September 5th, we started for Blossom Island, the weather still continuing thick and stormy. On crossing Pinnacle Pass, we found over a foot of new snow which had fallen since our companions passed that way. Toward nightfall, the lower limit of snow on the Marvine Glacier was reached, and at night we camped on the first moraines which appeared below the Neve. The day following, September 6th, we reached Blossom Island about noon and found that Kerr and his party had arrived there safely, and that Partridge had recovered from his snow blindness. Our stay above the snow line had lasted thirty-five days, and we were extremely glad to see the light of a campfire and have the trees and flowers about us once more. The vegetation indicated that the season was already far advanced. Most of the flowers had faded, and autumn tints gave brilliancy to the lower mountain slopes. Salmonberries and huckleberries were in profusion, and furnished an exceedingly agreeable change in our diet. After a bath in one of the small lakelets on the island, and a good night's rest on a luxuriant bed of spruce boughs, we felt fully restored and ready for another campaign. As Kerr was anxious to get back to Port Mulgrave, it was arranged that Lindsley and Partridge should go with him, and that the rest of the men should remain. Kerr took his departure on the morning of September 7th, and on the following day, Christie, Doney, and myself crossed the Marvine Glacier to the southern end of the Hitchcock Range, and the following day made an excursion out upon the Malaspina Glacier. The day of our excursion was bright and beautiful, and the mountains to the northward revealed their full magnificence. The level plateau of ice formed a horizontal plain from which the mountain rose precipitously and appeared grander and more majestic than from any other point of view. St. Elias rose clear and sharp, without a cloud to obscure its dizzy height, and appeared to be one sheer precipice. It is doubtful if a more impressive mountain face exists anywhere else in the world. After learning all we could concerning the Malaspina Glacier, we returned to our camp at the end of the Hitchcock Range, and the following day tramped across the extremely rough moraine-covered surface back to Blossom Island. The following morning, September 12th, we started on our return trip to Yakutat Bay. Two small tents and many articles for which we had no further use were abandoned, so as to make our packs light as possible. We crossed the Hayden Glacier and at night camped at the foot of Floral Pass. After making two intermediate camps, traveling each day in the rain, we reached the shore of Yakutat Bay on September 15th. Doney and I halted at Dalton's cabin for the purpose of seeing what we could of the openings that were made for coal, while the rest of the party pressed on to our old camping place on the shore. There they found Kerr and his party still encamped, 
but ready to leave for port mulgrave early the next morning september eighteenth was occupied by us in catching salmon and trout we were abundantly successful as every man returned to camp with all that he could carry these were spread out on a rack over our campfire and smoked for further use as we did not know how long our stay would be extended on the next day stamy and lindsley returned from port mulgrave where they had left kerr quite recovered from his exposure on the mountain stormy weather continued and a gale from the northeast piled the ice high on the beach and threatened to sweep away our tents as has already been briefly described in earlier pages on september twentieth our tents having been beaten in by a violent storm and our camping place overflowed by the waters from a lake above us we removed our goods to a place of safety and went to dalton's cabin where we awaited better weather the morning of september twenty third dawned clear and bright and after drying our clothes around a blazing campfire we started back to our camping place on the shore before reaching there however we were rejoiced to see the corwin coming up the bay it took us but a short time to get on board where captain c l hooper her commander did everything in his power to make us welcome and comfortable to him we are indebted for a delightful voyage back to civilization after steaming up disenchantment bay nearly to the ice cliffs of the hubbard glacier and obtaining a fine view of the glaciers about disenchantment bay the corwin returned to port mulgrave and on september twenty fifth put to sea after a splendid ocean passage we arrived at port townsend on october second during our stay in alaska not a man was seriously sick and not an accident happened the work planned at the start was carried out almost to the letter with the exception that snowstorms and the lateness of the season did not permit us to reach the summit of mount st elias suggestions should another attempt be made to climb mount st elias the shortest and most practicable route from the coast would be to land at icy bay and ascend the agassiz glacier the course taken by us in eighteen ninety could be intersected just north of where the tributary glacier from dome pass joins the main ice stream and from there the route followed last summer would be the most practicable a camp should be established on the divide between mount st elias and mount newton from which excursions to either of these peaks could be made in a single day in the preceding narrative many details have been omitted one of these is that tents together with blankets rations etc were left at two convenient points between blossom island and the agassiz glacier and were used by the men in bringing up supplies in attempting to ascend mount st elias from icy bay by the route suggested at least three such relay stations should be established between the shea hills where wood for campfires can be obtained as is known from the reports of the new york times and topham expeditions and the high camp on the divide the relay camps suggested should be one day's march apart and would serve not only for stopping places while carrying rations during the advance but would furnish a line of retreat a party making this journey should be provided with snowshoes which unfortunately we did not take with us all rations intended for use above the snow line should be packed in tin cans each of sufficient size to hold between fifty and sixty pounds and each should be securely soldered all articles packed in this way should be thoroughly dry and should be packed in a dry warm room when secured in this manner they are about as easy to carry as if packed in bags and can be cached anywhere out of the reach of floods and avalanches 
with the certainty of being serviceable when wanted the more perishable articles to be used where campfires are possible should also be secured in tin cans sacks of flour cornmeal etc should be protected by an outer covering of strong canvas the experience of last summer showed that the cans of rations intended for use above the snow line should each contain about the following ration which may be varied to suit individual taste bacon smoked ten pounds corned beef in can six pounds flour and cornmeal with necessary quantity of baking powder fifteen pounds coffee two pounds rolled oats five pounds sugar five pounds chocolate sweet two pounds salt one quarter pound extract of beef one quarter pound tobacco one half pound condensed milk small cans two matches wax one box our experience with oil stoves showed that they are serviceable while on the march they can be carried as hand packs in gunny sacks rectangular cans holding about a gallon each with small screw tops were found convenient for carrying coal oil the experience of arctic explorers indicates that alcohol would perhaps be better than coal oil to use in snow camps among the most important articles to be provided are strong shoes or boots of these each man should have at least two pairs strong hip boots with lacings over the instep are exceedingly serviceable when sleeping on the ice the bootlegs may be spread beneath one's blankets and the feet used as a pillow the long legs are serviceable alike in the thick brush on the shore and in the deep snow of the high mountains with their protection many streams can be waded without getting wet leather wax stands awls etc for repairing boots and tallow mixed with beeswax for greasing them should be taken and distributed in part through the cans of rations heavy woolen socks are indispensable and an effort should be made to have a dry pair always at hand this may be arranged even under the most unfavorable conditions by drying a pair as thoroughly as is convenient and carrying them in the bosom of one's shirt long alpenstocks are always necessary my own choice is a stiff one of hickory about six feet long and an inch and a quarter in diameter provided with a spike and a hook at one end and a chisel about two inches broad at the other ice axes are desirable while climbing in the high mountains but even more serviceable are light axes of the usual pattern but with handles about fourteen inches long these supplement the alpenstock and when not actually in use are carried in the packs each man should be provided with a watertight matchbox and should have besides a bundle of wax matches wrapped in oilcloth and sewed in the collar of his shirt to be held as a last reserve each man should also have a small watertight bag in which to carry salt enough to last a week or ten days in case he has to live by hunting or fishing a heavy hunting knife is very convenient and can be used not only in cutting trails through thick brush but in cases of necessity is serviceable in making steps in ice heavy woolen clothing is preferable to furs sleeping bags were not used during our expedition but are highly recommended by others for protection at night a thick woolen blanket with a light canvas cover and a sheet of light rubber cloth to protect it are all that is necessary our tents were of cotton drilling seven feet square about six feet high and provided with ridge ropes alpenstocks were used for tent poles sou'westers and strong waterproof coats are indispensable in a climate like that of alaska and at night may be used as a substratum on which to sleep 
while traveling over the snow line we used colored glasses to protect the eyes and also found that a strip of dark mosquito netting tied across the face below the eyes afforded great protection some of the party found relief from the glare of the snow by blackening their faces with grease and burnt cork but one experiment with that method is usually enough while camping below timberline during the months of june to september fine mosquito netting is indispensable in carrying packs hemp cod line of the largest size was found to answer every requirement and is preferred by expert packers to pack straps it has been suggested that experienced swiss guides are necessary to ensure success in climbing mount st elias having never followed a guide in the mountains i am not able to judge of their efficiency but it must be remembered that no one can guide in a region that has never been traversed the guide as understood in europe is unknown in america in the exploration of this country by engineers geologists etc the camp hands have followed their leaders and have not shown them the way in every frontier town there are hunters trappers miners prospectors cowboys voyageurs etc men who have passed their lives on the plains or among the hills and are inured to hardship and danger this is the best material in the world from which to recruit an exploring party a foreigner engaging the services of such men must take into account the independent spirit that animates them and is the secret of their usefulness they are not servants but retainers that too in regions far beyond the reach of civil law they will follow their leader anywhere support him in all dangers and do their work faithfully so long as their rights as men are respected by taking proper precautions while traveling across crevassed snow and ice and guarding against avalanches and snow blindness an excursion can be made above the snow line with as little danger as in better known and more frequented regions end of section thirteen